Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, why did Jesus come into this world? Why was He sent into this world? We have a time every year that we begin thinking about the birth of the Savior Jesus Christ. It's a festive time of the year. Families gather together and they do so in celebration. But what are they celebrating? What are you celebrating? What is it that you are looking forward to at this particular time of the year? Is it something that eclipses the true meaning of why we gather as the people of God? Why we gather as families? Why we have the festivities? What is it all about? It's just like Thanksgiving. Is it all about the food, the festivities, the football, all the other things, the excitement? Does that eclipse the true meaning of the coming of the Son of God? That often happens. And so we don't talk much when we have our family gatherings about the true meaning and the purpose of the coming of the Savior. We don't tell our children that He come to set the captives free. We don't tell them that He came to do the will of the Father and the will of the Father was to redeem all those that were given unto Him from before the foundation of the world. We don't tell them that He came to be the mediator between God and men And He is the man Christ Jesus. We don't say that He came to seek and to save those who were lost. We don't say that He came to give life and life everlasting to those that were given to Him by the Father. We miss that. We miss it because of all the festivities. And we really, as those that call upon His name, as professing, to be followers of Christ. We need to get back to the gospel. We need to get back to the reason and the purpose for which we gather and as the congregation or in our family homes. The purpose to exalt and to honor the one who has redeemed us from all of our sin and misery. This is what you find constantly in the gospel. Pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece. He is the one, as I've said before, when you will see some of the older homes that might have spotlights in the front that are shining upon the house, the Holy Spirit is like the spotlights, using metaphors, like the spotlights. He shines upon the house. The house is like Christ. You see the analogy. The focus is not upon the lights. You don't drive by and say, wow, what lights? You say, look at that house. Because that's the purpose of the lights is to accent the house. It's to, it's to brighten it up. It's to bring it into clarity. It's to draw your focus to the house. So it is in the gospel. So it is in the scriptures. This is what Jesus said in Luke 24. That all was written about him. Uh, the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets, the major and the minor prophets. And the Psalms, which refers to the the wisdom literature. The Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, all of it speaks to Christ. That's why Jesus had told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they that speak of me. So if we go to the word and we don't find Christ, he's not revealed to us. We've missed it because he is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. All of Scripture speaks to Him. So, this is what John begins in the Gospel. He begins about the being born again. He speaks about the kingdom of heaven. 
He speaks about being born of the Spirit of God, born from above, born anew. And he declares clearly, doesn't he, that unless you are born of the Spirit of God, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Now, without a doubt, some are sitting here this morning scratching their head, saying, what does this mean? What is this born again stuff that he's talking about? I've heard people who have been members of churches for years and had no understanding of regeneration. They have no understanding what it means of being born again. I'll just simply say it just as John says it. If you are not born again by the Spirit of God, then you are on your way to hell right now. You are on the broad road that leads to destruction. I don't care if you gather during Christmas season in a worship service. If you are not born of the Spirit of God, there is no worship of the true and living God. Pagans, the unbelieving man, cannot worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To be born again is to be made anew spiritually. As we come into this world as rebels against God, God-haters, God-despisers. We go our own way. We do our own thing. We don't want anyone to rule over us. You parents, you know this. You see this with your children. They want to do their thing. They don't want mom, dad, or anybody else telling them what to do. Just in a side note, uh, visiting with my my daughter and son-in-law and their kids, my grandkids, I heard my, my oldest granddaughter went upstairs and then the next oldest, the grandson, he went upstairs and I heard him bickering back and forth and then I heard this, this yell, you're not my mother. Right? I had a sister like that. I used to call her Mrs. Mom. She always wanted to rule over me. That's how we are. We don't want anybody ruling over us. We'll not have this man, Christ, to rule over us. It only is when you are born of the Spirit of God that you desire His Lordship over you, that you submit to Him, that you know Him as Savior, as Lord, as Redeemer, the one who has cleansed you from all of your sin by His perfect work. This is not a generic thing. This is specific. It is a particular work of the Savior on behalf of His people. He comes to redeem them He comes to wash them with His blood. He comes to make them white as snow. Our sins are as crimson. And He makes them white as snow. He washes away our sins. The hymn writer says, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now as many of you have heard this, I've said this before, what is nothing? It's no thing. It doesn't exist. There is no thing that can wash away your sins except the blood of Jesus Christ. You must look to Him. When you're born of the Spirit of God, you have a new nature. With that new nature, there is new desires. There is new love, new affection, new direction, new disposition, new mind. You have the mind of Christ, albeit an infantile form, but it is growing. You begin more and more thinking God's thoughts after Him. You want the thoughts of God. You desire the thoughts of God. You hunger for the thoughts of God. You want it to fill your mind 
so you can live your life to the glory of God. That is a consequence of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He alone can raise you up. The leopard cannot change his spots. The Ethiopian cannot change the color of his skin, and therefore neither can you, who are accustomed to doing evil, do good. Can't change your nature. So you must be born again. You must. You can't cause yourself to be born again. I remember Billy Graham once wrote a book, and the title of it is, How to Be Born Again. How? I mean, it's like some kind of mechanism. It's like something that you can do to cause yourself to be born again. It's an impossibility. This is what John is saying. The Spirit moves as the wind blows. You don't know where it's coming or where it's going, but you see the result of it, don't you? So it is with the Spirit of God. And as I mentioned yesterday, that our salvation is only in Jesus. In verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And what John is saying, uh, using what Moses did in the wilderness with the bronze serpent, is that the only way to be healed from the snake bite is looking to the instrument that God has given. Beloved, the only way to be saved from your sins is to look to the instrument that God has given. And that's Jesus. There's none other in the Word. There's no other place to look. If you look at any other place than Jesus, you're not born of the Spirit of God, and you're wearing fig leaves. And you will be exposed on that last day. You will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bet you didn't expect to come to a Christmas service and hear that, did you? That's the truth of the matter. So look to Christ. God sent him into this world for that purpose. Looking at our text this morning. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. The love of God. We're so accustomed to seeing the John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. And the world paints that as a blanket. It's just like it's thrown over everybody. God loves everybody the same. That's how the world views that. That's why you constantly see the John 3.16. God loves us all. doesn't matter what condition, what position, what circumstance or situation you're in. doesn't matter the condition of your heart. God loves everybody, you hear people say. That just simply is not true. Um, let me read this, 1 John, thinking of 1 John chapter 3. Uh, John says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Now, the question that we have to ask is, who is the world? The world in Scripture is translated into the English, world refers to three different things in the Greek text. It can refer to this planet in which we live. It can refer to humanity in general. And then there is the term that many get confused because uh, it's translated world, but it's different than cosmos. It's the Greek term oikomene, which means the known world, the inhabited world. It refers to the world of that day. It refers to the, uh, the area of what Paul is referring to, the, the Greek-speaking area. 
It refers to the, uh, the Asia Minor area, uh, not, not the world as a whole. And so who is this? God so loved the world. Does it mean head for head? Or is it in a general sense that God loved all mankind and therefore He sent His Son? Or does it mean that God loved His people, those given to Christ, and therefore sent His Son? You see, I think you're hard-pressed if you think that John 3.16 means every human being in this world when all of Scripture speaks about the atonement of Christ directed to His people and His people alone. He came to save His people. God loved in this way. Now, notice that this is speaking about the love of God in verse 9. This is love. In this is love. God's love was manifested toward us. All right. Before we get to anything else, let's, let's think about the us again. Who is he referring to with the us? If you begin in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and begin reading through up to this point and even further through chapter 5, you are going to find out that John is addressing the people of God. The us refers to the beloved. The us refers to those of like common faith. The us refers to those who have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. The us refers to the beloved in Christ Jesus. The little children in Christ Jesus. It's referring to believers. So John is saying to the believers that God manifests his love. You ever, you ever have difficulty certain days of your life? Martin Luther, as far as I know, coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul. Have you gone through that? Have you gone through difficulties and then you wondered, maybe you even questioned if God loved you? And you are looking for something that's tangible to lay hold on? And you're saying that if God did this, then I would know that He loved me? Beloved, we're all off course with that. When you have difficult days in which all believers do, you must go back to the teaching of God's Word. You must see the love of God manifest in Scripture. And the love of God is Jesus Christ. Who is Christ? He is God's love incarnate. He is the love of God incarnate. He is incarnate love. That's who Christ is. And God's love for us as His people was manifested in giving His Son, sending His Son. He sent His Son to do a particular work. Jesus said, it is written of me in the volume of the book, I come to do Thy will, O God. He comes to do the will of God. What is the will of God? That all that see me shall live. And I give them everlasting life and they never perish. This is the will of God. That all that the Father gives to me, that I would lose none, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of God. This is why Christ came. This is the work that He came to do for His people. The love of God manifested. You're struggling with difficulties in your life? Look to the cross. The cross of Christ manifests the love of God for His people for all time. Looking to the cross... You don't need a bumper crop to know the love of God. The things aren't always as they seem. There are people that get bumper crops that are pagans, and it's a condemnation to them. 
Things aren't always as they seem. You must go concretely to the Word of God and see the cross of Christ and the work of Christ on behalf of His people. That's the love of God. Notice the, the word there, manifest. Faneru. It means made clear. It's evident. It's clearly seen. God's love is clearly seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. And then it's not us defining what the cross is. It is God telling us what the meaning of the cross is. That on the cross, God the Son, truly man, truly God, in one person, absorbed the wrath that was due to our sins. Not in a generic, specific. Specifically, all those that were given to Him. I made mention of this in Sunday school yesterday. That when... Israel had on their once a year, the Day of Atonement, and they put the hands, the high priest put the hands on the scapegoat, sent that goat out into the wilderness. Whose sins did he pronounce upon that scapegoat? It was the sins of Israel. It wasn't the pagan nations all around. It wasn't a generic atonement. It was specific for the people of God. So you realize... That it's Christ has come, and He's come for His people. He came to do that work of, uh, of fulfilling all the demands of the law in our place. He came then to go to the cross, to lay down His life, because we have all broken the commandments of God. Isn't it amazing, even today, as those who are believers, we don't think much about breaking the commandments. Ah, Christ paid the price. It's a big deal. Many don't even confess it. Don't even think about it. Not even convicted by it. Well, you ought to be. You ought not to take the crucifixion of Christ lightly. He was born to die and to absorb the wrath of God in the place of His people. So, God's love is clear. And when you see this text, it is clear. This is how He loved us. Notice how it is action. It's not ethereal. God in action. God demonstrated His love. And love is always that way. Love is giving. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Love is giving. We find John speaking of this in 1 John 3. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, in action. Let's say you, you love if you're not following through with any action. Action always attends love. So it was manifest to us that God has sent His only begotten Son into this world. It's amazing, isn't it? The, the, the Son of God, the only begotten, the monogenes, the one of a kind, comes into this world. He comes with that sole purpose. His face is set like a flint. You're not going to detract Him. You're not going to dissuade Him. You're not going to push Him aside. You're not going to preempt anything that He's going to do. He came for the purpose of fulfilling the will of the Father to redeem a multitude. A multitude which no man can number. I mean, the staggering thing about Christ's work on the cross, that when He is treated by the Father as if He had sinned, every particular sin, personal sin, of every believer, every one that was given to Him, who in time the Holy Spirit regenerates. Think about your own sin. How many sins have you committed? 
Christ gave his life for every single particular, specific, personal sins of his people. Now take all of that mass of sin and heap it upon Christ. That's what he bore. Is it any wonder why he's in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's sweating great drops of blood? Is it any wonder that he says, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me? But nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. Is it any wonder why he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. He was banished into the wilderness that we never would be. He was cast out that we would be brought in, never to be cast out. This is the work of Christ. This is God's love for us. It's the best Christmas gift that you've ever been given. It's the best thing that you have ever received. Was your answer Christ? Was your answer the one who the Apostle Paul says that he is an indescribable gift? You can't describe the gift that we have received in the Son of God. That is the greatest gift that any could receive. If you've said, well, I got a bike one year, or I got a computer, or I got an iPhone, or I got... You missed it. The greatest gift is Christ. He's indescribable. There is nothing that compares to Him. So don't let the things of this earth eclipse the Savior. God's love was manifested. So that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God. Notice that Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 5. When we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. This is love. This is not Christ came to seek the righteous. No, He came to seek and to save sinners. He came to seek and to save the sick. The healthy have no need of a physician. It's the sick. They need the physician. This is whom Christ comes for. Because there are no righteous. There are no healthy. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. He alone comes for those that were given to Him and regenerates the soul, raises them up, brings them to Himself, washes them in His precious blood, clothes them with His perfect righteousness. That's the Christ. That's what He does. That is love. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. You know, I often ask this question. When you read Romans chapter 9, uh, which... It's coming from the Old Testament uh, with regards to uh, Cain and Abel, um, and, or um, Jacob and, and Esau. When I ask the question, do you have a problem with Jacob and Esau? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated? Do you have a problem with that? Many people have a problem, you know, why did God hate Esau? I mean, I don't have a problem with that. We all deserve to be hated. We've earned hatred from God. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. When Adam sinned, we all fell in him. He was the federal representation of all mankind. When he fell, we all fell in him. All the posterity of Adam fell. And therefore, the consequences, which is called the original sin, is imputed to all mankind. We come with a vicious nature. 
We come as God-haters, hating God, hating one another. That's how we come into this world. I don't have a problem that the Scripture says that God hates all those workers of iniquity, that God hates all those outside of Jesus Christ. I don't have a problem with that. The one that I struggle with is that God loved Jacob. Why did He love Jacob? Jacob wasn't any better than Esau. Jacob was a liar and a conniver. He was a rotter himself. And yet God set his love upon him and redeemed him. Jacob didn't earn the favor of God. He didn't earn the love of God. He didn't earn the election of God. It was for God's purpose, for God's glory. It was God's whole sole purpose to redeem Jacob as his own. If you're here this morning and you're redeemed, that's what God has done for you in Christ. And you can't look to anything in you and say, God loved me because. He loved us in spite of us. Our rebellion, our hatred, our going our own way, our not having Him to rule over us, and God loves us. That's love. Love is not looking for, I give because somebody gave something to me. Jesus even speaks about that. When you invite someone over for a meal, invite the lame the maimed, the blind. They can't repay you. Invite the downcast, the poor. Those have nothing. They can't repay you. You know, the rich repay. But, but these, they can't. That's love. That's where love reaches out. Reaches out to those who have no strength. So Paul says, when we were without strength, no ability to extricate ourselves, no ability to reform ourselves, no ability to improve ourselves, no ability to return to God. The covenant of peace, the covenant of salt. No, only rebellion. And this is when God comes. Not that we loved God. That's what John says. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. Notice a consequence. We love Him because. Acceptive clause is a conditional clause. Because, this is the only reason we love God, because He loved us. If He didn't set His love on us, we would continue to hate Him. God loved us. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. Mentioned four times in Scripture. Uh, we've seen Romans chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4. It's four times mentioned, propitiation. Propitiation is the atoning sacrifice. The propitiation, what happens in propitiation is that the wrath of God is turned away from us. What happens in propitiation is that we are made favorable in God's sight. Christ is the propitiation. He's the one who drives away the wrath of God from us. How does He do that? By enduring, absorbing the wrath of God. Pulling it upon Himself. So it's no longer directed to me. It's no longer directed to those who are in Christ. Christ has absorbed the wrath. He's turned it away from from us to Himself. He's the propitiation who makes us then favorable in the sight of God. Are you trusting Christ this morning? See your hope? See your joy, your crown, your rejoicing? Is He your all in all? And I'm not talking about believing things about Jesus. Are you trusting that He is the Redeemer? 
That He has redeemed you? That He is your propitiation? He is the one who provides redemption? He is the mercy seat? You kids, you hear this morning, maybe you go to church every Sunday with your, your, your parents. You, you go to worship and you, you're, you're amongst the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And maybe you think you're in the kingdom because your parents are believers and because they bring you to worship. You've got to trust Christ. You have no other hope but to trust Christ. You can't trust your parents for salvation. They can't save you. Christ alone can save you from your sins. Are you looking to Christ? Parents, are you teaching your children to look to Christ? Are you teaching them the need of the love of God, the redemption in Christ Jesus? Are you teaching them the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, the mercy seat, Jesus Christ? Are you teaching them their need for a covering, for atonement? We need to. We need to be faithful in bringing the gospel of Christ to our children. God loved us that he made way of propitiation for us in Jesus Christ. You remember yesterday, the Pharisee and the tax collector. How did you come this morning? How did you enter into worship this morning? Would you say you came as the tax collector? Or you came as the Pharisee? Did you come marching right in, presumptuously? Self-confident? With all your self-esteem? That you've done, I've been, I've done this, I've done that. I'm a member. I'm trusting this. I'm hoping in this. This is my confidence. I'm a good person. Is that how you came this morning? Would you come like the tax collector who stood afar off? It would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but says, God, be merciful for, to me. Provide a propitiation for me. Continually beat upon his breast. Understood himself to be the sinner. You know what Jesus says? That man went down to his house justified rather than the other. We come knowing that we need. And this is what John says. If God loved us this way, this is the manner in which God loved us, then we also ought to love one another. No greater love a man has than he who lays down his life for his friends. Love is giving. Love is reciprocal. Love goes back and forth with people that are redeemed. Love reaches out to those who don't know Christ. Love brings, love gives, love prepares, love provides. This is all that we see in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And we as the people of God are to emulate that. This is why Christ has come. Love incarnate came to be the propitiation for our sins. So that the wrath of God would not fall upon us. There is one hope. Doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't even matter what the church says. What matters is what the word of God says. And there is one hope and one hope only. And his name is Jesus. He came for this specific purpose. There is no other name 
given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus says it so clearly, come, come to me. Are you weary? Are you tired? Trying to do better, do harder, do more? Trying to please God with those? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. We need spiritual rest. Come, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in me, notice, in me, in me, in me alone, you will find rest for your souls. Come. He came for that purpose, that we would come to him. Amen. Shall we pray?